Over the years, I've collected bits of news events and stories that have captured my attention. Sometimes it's just a phrase that stands out that causes me to save the story. That was the case with a report from the Daily News a lot of years ago now concerning an exemplary FBI agent who was arrested and tried for treason. The story inspired a movie that told of how agent Robert Hansen fed secrets to Russia for over 15 years for an estimated one and a half million dollars. Chris Cooper played the title role. Russia's invasion of Ukraine tweaked my memory of the article. And again, let me pause to say, I know you join me in holding this matter in your hearts and minds before God. It seems an especially perilous moment that could wreak havoc for a generation. Well, rediscovering the story this week, I found the compelling phrase tucked away at the end of the article. The reporter wrote, at home in split-level suburbia, Hansen was the classic church-going dad and helpful neighbor with a wife and six kids from Central Casting who drove a beat-up Volkswagen van. A neighbor reported that his wife taught religion part-time at a high school. She said, they go to church every Sunday, if that means anything. A seemingly appropriate disclaimer under the circumstance. They go to church every Sunday, if that means anything. It's not clear whether the neighbor meant that in the general sense, as in, does going to church really ever do anyone any good? Or, in the particular case of this FBI agent, as in, it certainly didn't rub off on him. Either way, that phrase is what captured my interest. It's never possible to know the interior contours of a person's mind, is it? For instance, we don't know that Hansen's commitment to his family was completely disingenuous. You can see why the article caught my eye, though. The neighbor's offhand comment prompts an opportunity for a little self-examination. I suppose President Richard Nixon might have meant it when he said on the occasion of his acceptance of his party's nomination for the presidency, let us begin by committing ourselves to the truth, to see it as it is and to tell it like it is, to find the truth, to speak the truth, and to live the truth. He might have meant that at the time he said it. Then again, he might only have been mouthing expected pieties without any real commitment to them at all, which the evidence of his eventual lies and abuse of power would suggest. A number of years ago, a young self-described venture capitalist confessed to me that his original purpose for coming to Christ Church was to make connection with someone he thought was a member here and a hot ticket for a business opportunity. Turned out this other person was not a member, but he decided to stick around anyway. Said he felt like a fraud for a while. Then one day he realized he wasn't. He wanted to come to tell me that. He wasn't a fraud by coming to church. I told him I hadn't suspected, but I wanted him to know that he was in good company. Hard to know exactly where masquerade blends into the real person for any of us. 
No one can say for certain why any one of us walks into a church on Sunday morning or even attend a virtual service like this one. And then if a neighbor shared with another person saying she knew you were active in a church community, might she add the tag, well, if that means anything. But you know, the same holds for the disciples we read about in our scriptures. We tend to take their sincerity for granted. I suppose that's the result of knowing the ending of the story while we're in the midst of retelling the middle of the story. We know that by the very end, that is after their lousy betrayals, after they fled the scene of Jesus' greatest need, after they lie about their association with him, after he's tortured and finally put to death, after they've huddled together in fear for their lives in an upper room behind locked doors, then their sincerity finally kicks in the scales fall from their eyes and they accept the bold truth of the events they've just lived through. But before all that, before things start turning ugly, their various motivations for hanging out with Jesus are not all that clear. These were turbulent times. Many were anxious to overthrow the political power of Rome. Others were more concerned with a comfortable accommodation. We can't know the interior motivations of these disciples at this time or the nature of their sincerity. No doubt family and neighbors clucked whether their following meant anything much at all. In a few verses forward of the verses read today, Jesus finds them arguing about who will be the greatest in the newfangled kingdom he's been talking about. They had a very earthbound self-interest here not unlike the guy I just mentioned who came to Christ Church to make a business connection. Jesus just might be their ticket to success. And ironically, in a manner of speaking, by the end, he is all of that, but not until he has completely redefined their understanding of the meaning of success. Whatever their original visions might have been, what they got instead was way beyond their predicting. Thank God. Had they only gotten what they thought they had wanted, they would not have wound up with very much at all. And, I would add, neither would we. Now, I can't know how you think about your own presence here in worship whether for you it's more of an accommodation, a countercultural activity, a genuine spiritual discipline of praise and maturation, awkward curiosity, a simple matter of making connection with someone else, or some combination of these and other motivators. I couldn't possibly comment upon anyone's level of sincerity. I have enough trouble considering the level of my own on any given day. And I'm here quite a lot, by the way. But one thing I'm now quite convinced about is that whatever level of sincerity brought you here initially is enough for God to work God's will eventually. As the story is told, it didn't really matter why the disciples went up the mountain with Jesus that day Violet read about a few minutes ago. <clears throat> There's no question that they went up for some other purpose than what they found. They got something they could hardly comprehend, let alone expect. The text says they were weighed down with sleep. Ever been weighed down with sleep? Wished you had 
stayed home in bed, out too late last night, you're in the company of the disciples. Peter opens his mouth to speak, but the narrator quickly says he didn't know what he was talking about. Afterwards, we're told they all kept their mouths shut and didn't say anything to anyone about what they had experienced. No doubt that's because their words would not have been adequate to the task. They went up the mountain for their own conflicted reasons, but were met by the living God. And again, as a result of this mountaintop experience, they weren't transformed overnight into the disciples we now venerate. They went back down the mountain and argued about which one of them was the greatest among them, who deserved the most of whatever Jesus had to offer. In our own bold way, we say that by coming into worship, we mimic the disciples' ascent of the mountain to behold the Christ of God. Our forebears here at Christ Church were so intent on this that they put a very large and sparkly picture up there so we wouldn't miss the point. And then they went and named the whole building after him as well. Still, for all of that obviousness, for the occasional and wonderful moments of felt spiritual connection, for soaring upon music's wings, for inspirational words, for momentarily experiencing the fog of confusion, giving way to a bright, clear dawn of understanding, will we'll slip away oftentimes hoping to go unnoticed by our friends and peers and walk back down the mountain and back into our quotidian lives such as they are. And, and if we feel a bit like a fraud then, out there, we're on the right track. For in truth, who isn't something of a fraud in some way? And isn't the acknowledgement of truth the beginning of wisdom and the fount of freedom? But this isn't the whole truth. It's just a piece, and not the most important piece at that. For like what I said, whatever got us here initially in worship is quite enough for God to work God's will eventually. We don't bring only the good parts of ourselves. That would be an impossibility. No, like the disciples, it's far, far better that we lug all the baggage to the mountain, sleepy or not, distracted or not, conflicted or not, and find ourselves surprised that the living God would be interested enough in us, in us, to make an appearance. Then, Standing in God's presence, it's as though a veil is removed from our faces and we see with much greater clarity what is. As you heard Megan recount, Paul says that in this way we see the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror and all of us are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. Each of us transformed from one degree of glory to another. He would seem to mean that the transfiguration was contagious. And if we really hear this, if you dare to believe it, if only a little bit, the transformation has already begun. Transfiguration is a fancy theological word describing a process of revealing the truth. 
in the specific case of Jesus, revealing the truth of his identity. In the case of all of us, it's actually the same. Our true identity revealed at last. Royal heirs of creation who've taken on a thousand million billion disguises. In the bright light of revelation, we're invited to act and behave, to work and to love in the manner that reflects our true genetics. I don't know of another place you hear a message like this, one that inspires and dignifies the glory of our humanity, a message that ignites a hope that can sustain us through anything that confronts us back down the mountain, a message of freedom and truth. I think this puts church going into perspective. If church going means anything, that is.